Okay, everyone, do you want to just grab your seats? If you have a Bible, could you please go to Psalm 129? Psalm 129, we will be spending our time there today. Now, four, five, five people have told me in the last five minutes that I got the date for the fun run wrong. It's actually the 2nd of June, which is in two weeks' time, that we will not be meeting here. Now, I either got that wrong or I did that to check who was listening. And those five people, well done for listening. But now I just get to clarify with you. The fun run is on the 2nd of June, where we will not be meeting here. We will be out in the community. That is in two weeks' time. So that's something to look forward to. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be back into um, our series on the Psalms of Ascent, which we started way back in January this year. We had a break for Easter. We did our Easter series, Instagram Easter, and then we've looked at some of the vision and the elder stuff, so we're coming back to that now, so we're getting back into the Psalms. If you're new here and you're a bit kind of like, oh, I'm not sure about that, you can go back, have a little listen online and kind of catch up with those and where we're going and what God's been saying to us um, as a uh, church. What we've also been doing as part of this process is... Um, because we've called it Life's Playlists and the Psalms, as we'll find out, are part of our playlists for life and for the people of God, we've been inviting some of our leaders up to just come and share a little bit about who they are, what they do in the church, introduce them to you if you didn't know about them, and also get them to share a little bit of their playlists for, uh, for life. So we have, today we have Gemma coming to share this. So can you welcome Gemma to us? Uh, morning. Um, as Stuart said, my name is Gemma. Um, I'm married to Pete, who's taken one of our boys out to play. Calvin, who's two. And this is Noah, who's four months, who's going to help me. And we've been a part of Real Life Church for the last four years. Um, and I get to look after the youth, uh, which is school year seven up to age 18, um, which is brilliant. I really enjoy doing that. Uh, for work, I'm I was a secondary school teacher for the last 10 years. Um, I teach A-level psychology, um, and I'm ahead of year, so helping out with the pastoral side of school life. Um, But after I had Noah, I decided that I didn't want to return to teaching, so I am now at home with my two boys. So, my playlist, what I'm listening to. Um, When I was thinking about this, I thought the places that I listen to music at the moment are either in my car or in my kitchen um, while I'm entertaining children or doing jobs Um, and it's a real mix really if I'm in the car um, I would actually choose to put radio two on which Pete thinks is terrible so he keeps switching it back to radio one and so we've got a constant battle there Um, and if I've got Calvin in the back then I'm usually getting demands shouted for things like Rara the noisy lion or other CBeebies songs so if I'm at home in my kitchen I listen to a mixture of worship music podcasts and pop music so on my spotify account there is some taylor swift some jesse J, some ed sheeran some older stuff which maybe any charlotte's going to appreciate um, some eternal some mystique some britney spears um a little bit embarrassing pete thinks my music's terrible thank you <laughs> uh, more recently i've been listening to lauren daigle um, i really like her songs i like that the lyrics are full of truth in that I've also got some musical theatre on there, um, and I admit to having a bit of a long-term loyalty to Boyzone, because they were my first ever (laughs) concert that I went to. Um, I listen to a lot more podcasts since being a mum, I think because it's easier than reading, 
Um, so two of my favorites at the moment are Happy Mum, Happy Baby with Giovanna Fletcher. She just interviews lots of different people about their parenting experiences um, and is mostly just funny and entertaining. Um, and the other one that I like is the Youthscape podcast, um, which is interviews with people who work with the young in all different contexts, um, and they just chat about big issues facing young people today, and that's also just quite funny as well, a bit of entertainment. Um, but my most played music is worship music, um, and my favourite is Hillsong. That seems to be the one that I always go back to again and again. Um, and I think because I, I just find that their songs help me to focus on Jesus really quickly, and they always remind me who I am in him and who he is. So at the moment, I'm listening to their album, There Is More, um, and it's just brilliant. I just like having it on in the kitchen, just in the background, and then every now and then I'll just hear a little nugget of truth in there, which really encourages and stirs me to look at Jesus. I also like worship from Elevation Church um, and the live music from the live worship music from the New Day Festival that we take our young people to in the summer as well. And the last couple of years they had a gospel choir who were performing alongside the bands, and I've just found that really powerful. Um, and again, just really helped me to easily encounter Jesus. So that's my playlist. Fantastic. Thank you, Gemma. Okay. The, into the Psalms of Ascent. I hope you found Psalm 129. A quick recap. The Psalms of Ascent are a smaller group of Psalms within the whole book of Psalms. There's 15 of them from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And this um, group of Psalms was sung as pilgrims traveled from round about to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three major feasts that were held throughout the year. And in God's word, it said that the pilgrims should come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And the word ascent, because the Psalms were sent, were think, thought to be um, to do with as a pilgrim traveled to Jerusalem, they would have to travel up. As Jerusalem was on a, on a mountain, on a hill, and the temple itself was in the city on the, the Temple Mount, so the highest point in the city, so there would be a traveling up um, to meet with God, to meet with the presence of God. And these Psalms, um, as we've gone through them, cover many aspects and facets of life, the highs and lows of what it means to follow Jesus. Like our many modern pop songs, they deal with the good and the bad that we face. But all the Psalms of Ascent are rooted in the unchanging character of God. And so they really are a playlist for our lives. Now the collection of Psalms, if you put up um, the next slide, what they are, they actually can be broken down into threes. And each three is almost a a little um, journey in itself. It starts with a situation of stress in the first Psalm, then a Lord's power to deliver, then finally bringing the pilgrim home. And you can see that as we've been through. And if you look, we've been through the first, second and third Group of threes. We're now at the beginning of the fourth one, which is Psalm 129. So this is going to be a situation of stress. So you're welcome. It's good that you came this morning. But that's what we're going to be looking at. So we've got four lots of three. And then the final one is when they've actually reached God's city, the city of Zion. And we will be looking at that. Now, because this is a playlist for life, and we've been talking about music and song, and these were sung, these psalms, we've basically entitled every sermon after a song that you may know. So... Today's song is, Aaron? (laughs) Okay. This is, what's the name of the song? Give Me Hope, Johanna. 
by Eddie Grant. Can we, this will date so many of you. What year was that released in, please? I haven't heard it yet. Not 82, not 85, not 87. Not 86. I don't think, still don't think anyone said it, but I'll say 88, put you out of your misery. 1988. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with this song, quite a popular song at the time, this was a song against oppression. It was particularly aimed and focused at one thing. Who knows what that is? Apartheid. The apartheid, the system of government in South Africa from 1948 all the way up to the early 90s, it was about segregation of the whites from anyone else. And Johanna, in the title of the song, was only a reference to Johannesburg, the principal city of that country. And that whole sort of era of segregation uh, was a very uh, dark time in South Africa's history. And then in 1990, Nelson Mandela was freed, who had been in prison for many years for protesting against apartheid. The apartheid was officially repealed, I believe, 1991. And then in 1994, there were democratic elections. And that nation began its healing process. But the song was a song about oppression, a song against oppression. And what we're going to look at today is a similar song, a song against oppression. But this was a song against the oppression of God's people. So we're going to read Psalm 129 and look at that whole area. So can we have it up and I will read it out to you. It begins, verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which wither before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaths his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's always fascinating to read through the Bible systematically or study a bit of scripture systematically because it's amazing what it throws up that you have to deal with. So we've got something uh, that we're going to have to look at today. The big idea of today's sermon is that God's people will be oppressed But God's justice will prevail and their enemies will be defeated. That God's people will be oppressed, but God's justice will prevail and their enemies will be defeated. Let's talk a little bit about this psalm. This is uh, often referred to as an orphan psalm because it has no known author. Many of the psalms have authors after their name, David being the key one of those. This one has none. But if we look at the structure of the psalm, it's got quite a brilliant structure that has been designed by the psalmist as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It begins and ends with a double statement. First couple of lines, last couple of lines. Um, The first one is all about survival and suffering, and the last one is about life without blessing. If we then move in from the outside, like concentric circles, we find two images, two agricultural images. One is about plowing, uh, verse 3, and then in verse 6 and 7, we look about reaping. There's one about reaping as well. Ironically, in this one, the reaping does not lead to a harvest, which reaping usually does. So there is a negative connotation. And then right at the center of the psalm, verses 4 and 5, there is another double statement. 
about how the Lord um, cuts the cord of the wicked and puts to shame those who are his enemies. So you have a double statement at front and back. We've got one in the middle, and then in between those are two agricultural images that we will go through. And so I want to break this psalm into three sections, and we'll go through each one at a time. The first one is recollection, the second confidence, and the final one, judgment. Let's look at the first section, recollection. This psalm begins with a double statement, and then the agricultural image. It begins greatly. This refers to frequency. Uh, This term refers to repeatedly, time and again, often. So he's saying something is happening a lot. Then what does it say? I have been afflicted. This means to cause pain and to cause harm to someone. And if you're on the receiving end, you are the one being harmed. You are the one being hurt. You are the one who pain is being caused you. And it is happening a lot because it says greatly at the outset. It says, greatly you have afflicted me from my youth. So this is something that has been happening their whole life. Something that has been going on and on and on. And to emphasize this, it's said twice. In the Bible, when things are repeated, it is for emphasis. The classic example is when, it's, um, when they describe the Lord, they say, holy, holy, holy. They did it three times to really get the message across. So in repetition here is putting emphasis on it. There is something that has been going on. And we see sandwiched between them. It says, let Israel now say. So we know who they're talking about. They're talking about the people of Israel. The people of God are speaking this out. And they're saying, it's happened a lot. We've been caused pain and harm. And it's been since our youth. But in the midst of that, it says at the end there, a note of hope, yet they have not prevailed against me. Despite opposition, foreign, foreign governments, enemies outside, they haven't ultimately destroyed the people of God. They haven't prevailed yet. They have been through a sustained period of affliction time and time again. And then it uses this image, a graphic image about the plowers plowing on their back. Now, if you ever watched... A plow, what it does, a plow um, has these great large, I guess you can describe them as knives, blades that cut into the soil. And as you drive them into the soil and push forward, they cut the soil open and they turn it over so you can plant seeds. And if you're doing that on soil, great, that's good. If you're doing that on people, bad. And they're saying this has been like on our back. So you've got images of people lying down. One after the other, many, 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 and a plow is being driven over them, cutting them open, turning them over. It is a horrific image if we dwell on it, and that's what it's saying, what it's been like. We have been afflicted in such a way that it feels like a plow is being driven over us. We are being cut, we are being turned over, we are being devastated as a result. And this is an image we find in the prophetic literature in Micah, and again, it's repeated in Jeremiah where it talks about the people of God being under oppression like they are being ploughed over because people have come on them and caused them great pain and great affliction. And if we follow the history of the people of God, this is something that has happened since their inception. This is not an exaggeration on the behalf of the psalmist. If we go back to Egypt, where the people of God as a nation began, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, 12 sons, The one we kind of really know, Joseph, goes down into Egypt. We have all that Joseph story we've looked at. And then they grow into a mighty nation in Egypt. But what happens? It says a Pharaoh comes along who didn't know Joseph, didn't know what he'd done, and he enslaves the people of God. 
where we have the whole story of Moses who has to come and say, let my people go because they are under oppression. So from their very birth, the people of God have been oppressed. And we have the horrific story of the drowning of the babies in the Nile um, under a wicked tyrant, Pharaoh. And then we, t- we follow the people of God out of Egypt. They are delivered, but they're into the wilderness. And again, enemies come against them, seek to destroy them, seek to kill them. As they enter the promised land, is a story of cycle of conquest. Once they've settled in the promised land, we have story after story after story of enemies coming against them, harassing them, ruling over them one after the other. God raises up deliverers, but it happens again and again. And then eventually you kind of get towards um, the end of the time in the promised land and you have the destruction of the northern kingdom and you have the destruction of the southern kingdom uh, by Assyria and uh, Babylon as they destroy God's people. So it's been something that has just been part of the history of God's people to be oppressed. And then we go into the New Testament and we find Jesus comes and what happens to him? He is rejected. He is lied about. He he is betrayed. He is put on trial. He is beaten and mocked. And ultimately, he is executed himself. And then we see this history of the early church that comes through persecution. We see the the martyring of Stephen, who is killed. We see as the church grows and multiplies, oppression comes against them and against them and against them. Uh, James, the brother of John, is killed. Paul himself, the apostle Paul, falls, um, is, uh, goes through many persecutions, points in beating and stoned. You read his kind of account in one of his letters to Corinth about, I've been lashed, I've been shit, I've been, all these things have happened to me for trying to preach Jesus and tell others. And if you go through the, um, the history of the church, There have been time and time again when oppression has come against God's people in different guises, different forms. I went on to the the website of Open Doors, which is a a global charity whose aim is to raise the awareness of persecution persecution against Christians around the world. And it's got a list on there of nations, and they're all graded by level of um, opposition, persecution. The top one being extreme. That's how they grow. That's the top one, and it, it kind of categorizes down. They rank 10 nations around the world right now where Christians are facing extreme persecution. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, India, and Syria. This is what it's like now. We live in a bubble here in the West, but we are removed from that. But there are many places around the world to do what we do today, to meet in a building, public, tell everyone where we are, and sing and shout about Jesus would end up in our arrest or even death. Um, but this is the story of God's people. They have been oppressed since the beginning. Let's move on to the next section, verses 4 and 5. It was hinted back, uh, I think it's verse 2, where it says, They have not prevailed against me. But now we have confidence. What does the psalmist say? He says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. So we have this double statement um, in the middle of the psalm about the nature and character of God and what he's doing. And it begins with a very simple statement. The Lord is righteous. Despite the trouble, despite the past, despite everything that's going on, the source of hope is in the God of Israel. And it's really just an announcement, a statement about who God is. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just declaring what the Lord is like. And it starts with the Lord, God of Israel, sovereign ruler over everything. 
Then it uses the word is. He's talking about his nature, his character, his essence. Who is this Lord? And it uses a simple statement. It says righteous. The Lord is righteous, which means he is just. He seeks to establish justice and everything that that means. And in the face of opposition, oppression, suffering, the psalmist looks to God and reminds himself who the Lord is. And the Lord's desire for justice means that the guilty will not go unpunished. That oppression will not last forever. All the enemies will one day face justice for their actions. And then it goes on to say what he does. What does he do? It says he cuts the cords of the wicked. And this has a kind of multiple images. You could imagine the plower who's plowing the backs of the oppressed. The plow would have been drawn by an animal an oxen or something like that, a donkey, and you can imagine the cords being cut. If the cords are cut, the animal goes free. What does the plow become? Useless, ineffective. It cannot, it cannot move. The oppression stops then. So the Lord is the one who cuts those cords. It could also be just the fact that um, slaves were maybe um, uh, shackled or held after them, and if the cords are cut, if their, their, their bonds are broken, they are then to go free but the result is the same there is a freedom that comes because the Lord is righteous those cords will be cut and the wicked will no longer have their slaves when they want to do their evil works and then it goes on and talks about his enemies it talks about those who hate Zion Zion is a reference to Jerusalem God's city but more than just a place the fact that what was key about Jerusalem was it held the temple in the temple was God's presence the very presence of God. And so when it describes those who hate Zion, in effect it is saying those who hate the Lord. Those who hate God and everything he stands for. Those who hate his uh, purposes. Those who hate his love and his mercy and his grace. Those who hate everything about him. And so they are God's enemies. Not just the people of God's enemies, but God's enemies. And he says, to those who hate God, those who are against Zion, he says, they will be put to shame and turned backward. And this is um, an image of defeat. This is an image of humiliation. This is an image of turning back, whether it's a military route. Maybe they come forward in their armies, but they are utterly devastated before the Lord. Or maybe even a political one. They're trying to use uh, machinations and political intrigue to kind of get one over on God's people. But their, their, their schemes will come to nothing. And we see that time and time again throughout God's word. That actually the enemy of God ultimately will be brought to nothing. They will be brought to humiliation and defeat. And if we track through the Bible, we think about Egypt great superpower and God came and there were the plagues he piled the Red Sea their army was destroyed and so they were utterly humiliated by a bunch of slaves and their God and we see that through there and many others through the history of God's people people who came against them ultimately destroyed Assyria Babylon even the Roman Empire which stood against the church ultimately has come to nothing and even throughout history look now many ideologies have come up against God people and they have been proved to be brought to nothing because the Lord is righteous. It's fascinating to think that the church began with just a handful in an upper room who were scared and had no political clout of anything. The Holy Spirit fell on them and right now Christianity is the largest faith on the planet and is growing exponentially all over the world, particularly in some of these extreme areas that we have supreme confidence as the people of God in our God 
to be righteous and establish his justice. The last thing, judgment. We now finish with another agricultural images followed by a double statement to finish out the psalm, which is a reverse of how the psalm began. And this psalm, this psalm be, um, contains what they call imprecations, which are basically spoken curses against an enemy. We don't come across this a lot, but it's in our Bible. Read the Psalms. There are a lot of these kind of things. And so this is why we need to read all of God's word, just like favorite bits. But we have these spoken curses against God's enemies. Some of them are quite hair-raising. And if you read through some of the Psalms, you get quite an insight into people's feelings. And you've got to understand these are the feelings of God's people who have been oppressed and afflicted and how they're responding to it. So he actually ends up kind of cursing their enemies. And it starts with this agricultural image of reaping. Now, it says reaping was a time of celebration. It was a time of harvest. It was a time when people kind of cheered at God's abundance and God's provision. One of the festivals that the pilgrims would have been traveling to Jerusalem for was a harvest festival where there had been feasting and there had been wine and there had been food and music. And it was just, it was a great time, a great party to be at to celebrate the abundance of God. But let's look at the image here. It says... This is God's enemy. He says, let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaths his arms. And the image they're using is sort of the image of harvest, which is beautiful abundance. He's saying, eh, nothing like that. I want their harvest to be like this. Imagine the rooftops of the houses, which would have had soil on them, a very thin layer of soil, uh, and seeds would have blown um, on them from the wind, from the fields and round about, and they would have gone into the soil on the rooftops and they'd have sprung up. But because it's a very thin layer, there's no depth, there's no, the roots can't go anywhere, they can't get any moisture. So when the sun comes out, which is hot and oppressive, what happens? It's wither and die. And the psalmist is saying, I want their harvest to be like that. I want it to be nothing. I want it to wither and die. I want it to have no root whatsoever. It reminds me of the parable of the sower, that Jesus told when he talks about the, the, the seed going out everywhere. One of them fell on places where there was no roots. They couldn't go down. And what happened? The sun came out and it just, they just withered and died. And they're saying, I want it to be like that. Would God's enemies be like that? Wither and die. And this image is actually used by Isaiah against the Assyrians who are oppressing God's people. And, and the psalmist is effectively saying, yeah, like that. Let's do that again. God, they're coming against us. They're oppressing us. Let's wither them up and die. For their, their, their outward strength, which makes them look so good, let it come to nothing before you. And then it goes on. It talks about the reaper um, who fills his arms. It's saying, May's got, he basically, he's empty. His hands are empty. The reaper would come with their size and their sickles, and they would cut the corn, the grain. And they would bind it up, and they'd have sheaves of corn, which is brilliant, because from that you can make the flour and bread, etc., etc. And they're saying, may them just stand empty. May they have nothing to show for what they did. Instead of the harvest being a time of celebration... Let it be a time of barrenness and emptiness and your judgment on them. And then it finishes at the end with this double statement about the Lord's blessing. And usually when you read in the Psalms, blessing, that's great. Yeah, Lord, bless us, keep us, all those kind of things. But what he's saying there, he says, verse 8 begins in my translation, it says, nor, nor do those who pass by say. So he's saying, basically, I don't want them saying this, God. 
definitely don't want them saying, which is the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a, um, an allusion back to the book of Ruth, which we studied a couple of summers back here in church. And, what, and that, that story is about harvest. And there was a kind of a back and forth saying that seemed to come out at harvest time. Um, and the character in the story, a guy called Boaz, he came into the field and he was the landover and he had people work for him collecting in the harvest, which is linked up with the story of Ruth, which is a beautiful one. If you've not read that, go read that. But he basically comes to his reapers in the field and he basically says, may the Lord bless you. And they say, hey, and the Lord bless you too. It was kind of a back and forth exchange as a celebration of harvest, a celebration of what God has done. Look at this abundance. Look at the blessing of the Lord that is upon us. <laughs> and the psalmist is saying, I don't want them saying that. Let me be really clear, God. We say this because when you're good and we say the harvest is there, I do not want the enemies of the Lord saying that. I want them to have nothing at harvest. I want them to look at their harvest and just be like, nothing to say. Nothing to say. We can't say anything about blessing. We can't honor anyone. We can't say because there's just nothing there. It has all come to nothing. And so the, the end of this psalm ends with that note of kind of judgment on God's enemies. I want everything they've got. I want it just to come to nothing. What can we, okay. What can we learn from this? Let's put some things together. Three things just to finish that we can learn from this. Number one is the reality of oppression for God's people. The reality of oppression from God's people. From beginning to end, this psalm points out that there is pain and suffering and oppression for those who follow God. Those who follow God. The people of God have known it since their inception. We read it through the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, this is what happened. And there is suffering right from the beginning. And there is graphic image used in the terms of the plowing and plowing people back to underline that. And it's part of living in a fallen world. We have an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy us. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy God's people. He wants to destroy everything that God would have for you. He wants to destroy your homes. He wants to destroy your marriages. He wants to destroy us as a local expression of that. And he's always been after that. And as a Christian living in this fallen world, you will suffer. You will suffer. You will face oppression. Now, because of us in the West... Where life at the moment, generally, is okay for Christians. We have a certain amount of freedom in society to say and do things. We can kind of live in sort of a, well, everything's kind of all right. But there are many, many, many places around the world where this isn't the case. This isn't the case. And I've, we even had this incident very recently, a couple of weekends ago, Easter Sunday. There were attacks in Sri Lanka where terrorists attacked uh, hotels, but they also targeted churches on a Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and bombs went off in churches, and many, many, many died. They were targeted because they were churches. And many people went home to be with Jesus on those days. It happens all around the world. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you just go and have a look at the Open Doors website. Just to think about some of these things, dwell on them, because the danger is we live in it here, and we can think of oppression in our, only in our Western context, which can come in a little bit. Maybe you get ostracized. Maybe you get passed over promotion. Maybe people talk about you behind your back, which is not great, but actually there is a whole deeper level that many followers of Jesus are facing right now and will face 
all over this world. And we just have to be real about that. And that is, that is our inheritance as the people of God in this life at least. The second thing is the justice of God. In the face of darkness and oppression, we look to the one who is righteous, the only one who is truly righteous. And we can trust him and know ultimately all injustice and every evil will be punished one day. All of it. Nothing escapes God's vision. Nothing escapes his gaze. Every act of terror, every act of evil, every act of oppression will one day be made held to account. Those who commit those will one day be called to account. Now, this might not happen in the way we want and particularly in the time we want, but we know it will happen in this life or the next, but it will happen. And we have to trust in God who is righteous, God who is above all things. God is the one who establishes justice, and we have to trust in his perfect timing for that, and we have to trust in his wisdom in doing in how that works out. And in our times of uncertainty, in our times of questioning, in our times of, oh my goodness, we look to him. And we declare, as the psalmist declares, the Lord is righteous. He will cut the cords of the wicked. And those who hate Zion will be turned away and brought to shame. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We see that he faced oppression, injustice, he was rejected cruelly beaten and then executed, although totally innocent, laid in a borrowed tomb. But then Sunday came and he rose victorious from the grave. He broke the power of sin. He broke the power of death. He defeated the enemy. He ascended into heaven and he rules and reigns at his father's right hand. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead and everything will be dealt with at that moment. And we look forward to that day, and we have confidence in that day is coming. But in the meantime, we need to look to the justice of God now, knowing that that will happen, and trust in that. And Jesus even said that to us. He said, in the meantime, while you're here, he said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) Thanks, Lord. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so whatever we face now, whatever our brothers and sisters around the world face now, we can look to the justice and the mercy and the grace of God, knowing that one day he will bring all things under his rule and under his feet. The final thing is the need for God's people to pray. The need for God's people to pray. In response to the the oppression that we have, in response to the justice of God, we should cry out to him, just like the psalm, psalmist cried out to him. We need to pray. We need to pray for the alleviation of suffering um, of the persecuted church around the world. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters that we will never meet this side of eternity and what they're going for. And we need to pray for them and bring them to God. We need to pray that God's justice would prevail in those situations. We need to pray that there will be an establishing of justice in those situations. We need to pray that uh, oppressive governments, oppressive regimes would be torn down in Jesus' name. We need to pray that they would come to nothing as they have through all of history. Those tyrants who have been raised up, ultimately they are brought low. And we need to pray for that as well. And we need to pray for God's enemies to be defeated. 
more and more. And there are places around the world particularly to bring to God and say, Lord, would you move in justice and in power? And often we can stand back and be overwhelmed. How do we, how do we kind of, there are thousands and thousands of miles away in a culture I can't even understand and going through stuff that I just, is beyond me. We cry out to God and say, God, you move, you know. Raise up more leaders to lead your church. Raise up more men and women who will persevere in times of trouble. Lord, bring low those who would stand against you, all your enemies. We know ultimately they will be brought low and destroyed. But actually, in the meantime, Lord, we pray. And we pray that the church would multiply. It's fascinating in church history that some of the places where the church multiplies fastest and most effectively are the places where it's facing most persecution and suffering. It's, I, I don't quite understand the logic of that, but in God's grace and God's mercy, that's where he seems to be working. Um, I wonder if you ever prayed for church growth in this country, if, in, by, in, if you're actually praying for God to bring persecution on the church here. might make you rethink your prayers slightly, like, uh, okay. But that's how God seems to work. So I want us to pray this morning. I want us to end with a time of prayer as a people, to pray and to seek God. So that's what we're going to do. I want us to pray together. I'll give you some direction. And the band are going to come up and we're going to praise Jesus and we're going to put our eyes on him. And we're going to lift him up and remind ourselves that the Lord is righteous. And he is the one sovereign over all things, over our lives and everything that's going on with us, but also over his family, his body, the church, which stretches way beyond this tiny little corner we're in here to the nations of the world. And the people groups of the world. So that's what I want us to do. So would you mind just standing? Maybe the band just want to come up and get ready. And we're going to pray. And what I thought would be good, I'll give you a few pointers. I think we'll do it like this. Maybe you just grab one or two people around you. And together pray for God's people around the world because this is our family we think of this as our family which i think is fine and good but actually we're part of a greater family a bigger family that is spread all around the world of men women and children serving god and the most of them are worshiping this morning whether it's in secret or in public in a big group or ones or twos or even on their own because they may not know any other christian in the town or village they live in but they are all part of our family. And many, many, many of them are facing vile and evil persecution. And so what I'd love us to do is to call out to God. I'd love us to call out to God. I'd love us to say, Lord, give us grace. Give us faith to persevere in the face of trial and troubling. Thank you that you have overcome the world. You didn't lie and say everything's going to be as you said. Actually, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> it's coming. Get ready for it. But I've overcome the world. I am with you. I have not le- I'm not going to leave you. And I love you to pray for God's justice to prevail in those places where evil, wicked regimes are oppressing the church, that they would be torn down and they would come to nothing. That the men and women involved in them would actually repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. And I pray, we pray that God's enemies would be defeated and the church would multiply and grow. So why don't you just get into twos and threes with someone around you and just pray pray for those things. I've got got a couple minutes before my time's up and then we're going to sing. Or maybe I'll pray to finish and then we'll sing.